The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Okay, good evening, everybody. I'd like to welcome Maeve Kelly to the show. Maeve is an entrepreneur, musician, humanitarian, and an all-round great person. So welcome to the show, Maeve. Thanks very much. Nice to be chatting to you, Simon. Nice to chat to you. We haven't spoken in a while. It's been it's been a few, I, I was going to say a few months, but it's been a few years. It absolutely has, hasn't it? You know, <laughs> but uh, we go back a long way. We're like passing ships in the night. We see each other every couple of years at some kind of event or some... A, a wedding or a funeral or something, some a, a gig, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. There's been a few good weddings along the history there now. <laughs> How are you, Mav? How is life treating you at the moment with all this COVID thing and everything? How are you keeping? I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay, to be honest with you. Like, I, I feel very lucky to be living in a village like Kimbara because you know we've got a, a great community here. So. And I'm right in the village, you know, so I don't feel very isolated. If I have to go to the post office or to the shop, you're, you're bumping into everyone and their uncle along the way, you know. And there's a very strong, supportive community here. Um, but yeah, no, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm keeping busy, keeping keeping the head above water, you know. So Maeve, uh, tell us, when did you move to Canberra? How long have you been there? I, it's coming up to about 10 years now. Um, I can't actually believe I'm saying that. Yeah, yeah, 10 years. Love the place. Has Kinvara grown a lot? Is it still a small place? It's 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 not really grown because it's you know bound by the sea on on one side and the burren on the other, and uh, strict strict uh, planning regs on the all the other sides. So there's been a couple of small estates have been built, but really it hasn't changed at all in the last ten years. And is there a lot of you know, blow-ins, as they say. Is there a lot of people that are not from Kinvara living around the community now? Yeah, big time. I, but it always has been a, a, attractive to the, the blow-in factor, you know. But I think what, what kind of makes Kinvara stand out, really, is that there's a great um, mixing of the locals and the blow-ins. A lot of the locals would have been people who were returned immigrants and things like that. So they have a, a good sort of global mentality. And, right. Um, the, the yeah, it, you know the way you go to some towns and near the Twain would mix, but it, here it's very different. Everybody knows everybody, and they get on very well, and they get very involved in community endeavors and things. And tell me, in Kinvara, how like are there many pubs at the moment? I know Tully's is one of the big bars there, but are there many of them still open? Well, I know everything's closed at the moment, mm. but before that, was there many bars in the town? Um, well, yeah, sort of in that little in-between bit of when we lifted the lockdown one and before <laughs> lockdown two, they all opened bar one, which was Green's, which is like our second sitting room, but it was... Um, they couldn't. They just couldn't figure out social distancing, and they also just couldn't bring themselves to be able to say to their locals, "Sorry, we're full. You can't come in." So they decided to just stay shut. But uh, all the other bars made a go of it. Um. So yeah, there's there's what there's. I think there's like in 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 the, in Kimbara and the hinterland, there's nine bars. 
when you were in London, you went so and you were like 17 or 18. So what, what did you do when you went there? You got you went on the boat, obviously. Did and you kind of look for a job or hang out with friends for a while? Yeah, well, I got, you know, got very into the squatting scene over there. And um, <laughs> as loads of Irish people did at the time, I, I moved to Hackney. And at that time, there was 50,000 squatters in Hackney. You know, and it was a brilliant scene. It was a really, really good scene. It was like I, I was busking. I was just, you know, I'd been busking uh, all along since I was fourteen in Dublin, anyway. And um, it was just brilliant for, but it was just like a kerching kind of thing, busking in London and the tube stations and and things. You know, I couldn't get over it, and I couldn't get. I, you know, I was seventeen, so I couldn't get any benefits, and it was hard enough to get a job as well at seventeen. You know, but um. So yeah, busting saw me through, and then uh, I got a job in a bar uh, once I turned eighteen, and then I uh, managed to land myself a place on a course doing sound engineering. So um, I, I, that kind of sent me off on a on a spin. Then when I was in London, I did I did the year long study in the sound engineering, and then got working it. You did your leaving cert or whatever, but how? What were you like at school? Were you academic or you hated it? I was a demon. I was an absolute demon. I hated, I hated school. I couldn't wait to get out of the place. Um, I my, I broke my poor parents' hearts. You know, I, they had all these dreams and aspirations of me going to college and everything like that. And I just couldn't wait to leave the place. And yeah, I was awful. I was I was a courier in school. It's I I really regret it now. You know, because it was actually in retrospect a nice school. You know. And they were looking out for us, but uh, no, <laughs> I think I was a lost cause. Were you a big family or how many was in your family? I had three brothers and then, uh, and they were all younger than me. And um, then my aunt lived down the few doors down the road. And my granny lived around the corner. So we were all, and another aunt lived the other end of Renla. So it was, it was very uh, close, you know. Were they dubs through and through or did they come from other places? Uh, my mother... Uh, is a, was a seventh generation dub. Actually, sorry, I was a seventh generation dub. You're the seventh. <laughs> yeah, and she was absolutely disgusted with me when I got pregnant with my daughter in Galway. And she she said, I, I, are you, I presume you're coming up to Habit in Holler Street. And I went, yeah, right, Ma, I will get onto Nestor's bus and labour and go and have a baby in Holler Street. She went, oh, no, no, come on now. You know what I mean? Like, it'll be the eighth generation. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> that's not happening. That, that's good. Uh, but no, dub through and through, yeah. Um, but uh, my dad was from um, Roscommon. Oh, really? Yeah, Balahadreen up in the, in the north of Roscommon. I know it, yeah, Balahadreen. Very good. So yeah. he obviously went up to Dublin working and stayed there. Yeah, yeah. I met, met my mother in um, McDade's pub. Oh, wow, that's really cool. And yeah. was it a thing, did, did you feel that, you know, for your dad, the fact that he moved to Dublin, it... it opened up more opportunities for him or, or it didn't? How did you feel about that? Like, as you look back on it? Oh, um, I, 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 he would have been suffocated in Roscommon. Like, I, I can't imagine what Roscommon was like in the 1950s. But, uh, like, he, he did his stint in London now. I, I know he left Roscommon and went to London and did a, a, a few years there and then came back to Dublin and met my mom. When you were in Dublin, was was uh, were you in an all girls school or a mixed school or what kind of school were you in? <laughs> yeah, it was in an all girls school, but uh, there was some classes that you had to go up to the boys' school for. <laughs> so we all signed up for the classes. Biology, biology. No, uh, physics, 
chemistry and art. Okay. And I hadn't a notion of being interested in physics or chemistry, but I signed up for it anyway, so I could go and see the boys. Go and see the boys. Was your school like a, a mercy or a presentation, one of those type? No, it wasn't actually. It was, um, it, it's, it doesn't exist anymore, the school, but um, it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was a Catholic school, but it didn't have any nuns in it. My right. mother deliberately tried to find a school that didn't have any nuns because she had left school at 13 because of the nuns. And she said she's never sent a child of her, hers to a school with nuns in it. I think she must have had a really bad time in school. Well, you know, it's it's amazing, isn't it? Because I, I remember being in the Christian Brothers in Tume and there was still, um, you know, monks in there and uh, some some of the priests and stuff. And the thing was, your mother took a great decision because a lot of, ki- a lot of kids went to schools with that kind of nun system. And it was only later, towards the 90s, people started getting away from it, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and that's why, you know, when I was saying I was a, like I was a courier in that school. And I I was kind of probably a bit of a slap in the face for my mother, you know, because she, in fairness, you know, she had made this big effort to get me into a school that, you know, was a good school. And but I wasn't run by nuns. And I, I kind of, you know, yeah, <laughs> didn't really respect that, you know. And did you, you know, you you said obviously when you went to London, you were busking. Did, did you ever do much busking in Dublin at that age or did you kind of start more in London? No, I started busking in Dublin when I was 14. OK, OK. So how did you get how did you get into that or just through friends or? I was the lonely teenager up in my bedroom with my Tim Whistle. <laughs> right, right. I get away from the brothers or uh, just the mayhem of my family and um and then I just go, yeah. And I was always broke, so I just said, "Fuck it, I'll try busking." Sorry, excuse the French, but um, yeah. So I went uh, down. I, I was hanging out uh, down in 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 town anyway, down around Grafton Street and everything. So I just brought the Tim Whistle in. I was terrified, like, but I brought it in and said, "I'll try." And um, no, I got very involved in the busking scene then, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it, like that's one thing we have in common. I, you know, I was a busker as well for a few years in Galway, and I remember the first time I went out, and uh, I knew, I knew one song. I think it was like a Nirvana song or something, and uh, I could. It was. It had like two chords, and I could go back and over between them. And, you know, you're kind of thinking, what will I do next? And you stop for five minutes and then you start it all over again and get a new crowd, yeah, you no. know? <laughs> yeah, I had, I had five, I think I had five tunes for about the first year and a half. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> crazy. The poor people in the shops near me, you know? <laughs> I, I remember um, I was there um, and I was like in, in on Shop Street in Galway and this guy came along and he had a guitar with him and I had seen him busking and he was like pretty good on the guitar. And he said to me, OK, let's me and you play together. We'll bus together because he didn't like singing. So I was singing and he was kind of playing like lead acoustic guitar. And uh, but he was way, way ahead of me, you know, and he, I, I'll say his name, Brendan O'Gorman, because we used to play together for a lot, um, a good bit then. But it was crazy because I was thinking, no, no, I can't play with you. I mean, you're miles ahead of me. And he was like, don't worry, I shout out the chords to you. So as we'd be playing, he'd be like, fucking E, tar E, you can't E. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a good Brilliant. way of learning. <laughs> yeah, 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 on the hoof, literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's so. So I mean, it's a that's the great thing about busking, you know. People look at it and go, oh, is, you know, was it not dangerous? And of course, you meet scumbags, but you meet the best of people. And the thing is, you, you kind of learn how to do it 
and you learn. I, I remember, you know, it's great in the summer, but when you're doing it in the winter and your hands are falling off you with the cold and you're making only a few quid, but you're thinking, well, it's this or the, just the dole or whatever. So, I mean, it's a great occupation. And, and you know, obviously Galway now is good for it, but, you know, a lot of cities kind of don't like it anymore. But I think it's a great way for a musician to get on their feet, isn't it? It's an absolutely brilliant way of cutting your teeth. Yeah, yeah. I think the golden rule that you have to learn as a busker, though, is never go busking when you're broke. No, because exactly. The public, they pick up on it that you're hungry. You know what I mean? Like hungry as in that you need the, the spondulics. But, uh, like, I, 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 that took me a long time to learn, you know. Go busking. Go busking for fun. You know, you need to go out there and enjoy doing it. And, and that's you know? the thing, you know, when, when you're out there and you're enjoying it, you'll make more money and you'll have more crack. But when yeah. you're kind of looking in the wallet or the purse and you're like, oh, I've only five euros left and, you know, I have to pay rent and I have to do this and whatever. And then you're thinking, I'll go out and make some money. Th- those nights you very rarely make money because you're kind of doing it for the wrong reasons. And it's you can be lucky, of course. I mean, I've some nights I've had no money and gone out and made 40 or 50 quid in an hour or two. And you're thinking, geez, I thought I'd make nothing. It's a Monday night or something. But, yeah. you know, it, as you said, it's a bad thing to do if you and stay away from it if you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, go, go do it for fun and do it for practice. You know, because it's yes. absolutely brilliant practice for honing your skill. Yeah, and how, how was it? How did you find the difference in busking in London compared to busking in Dublin? Uh, the, the the first thing that was a big adjustment was the lack of community. Like, you know, because there was a really strong uh, busking community in Dublin, particularly in the late 80s. There was, you know, all, all the people that you'd be quite well known now, like, um, you know, the Frames lads and the, the Mary Jane and all them they were all knocking around and um and and, and lots of others but there was a great community and everybody looked out for you so then suddenly you're finding yourself down in a, a tube station in Holborn or somewhere like that and it's a bit it's it was scary because you knew there was nobody looking out for you and it was um you didn't know it was you were just dealing with a different animal you know but um it it didn't in fairness it didn't take me long to find a a, a busting community there either, you know. But where were you living that time? I was living in a part of London called Hackney. Hackney, um, oh, yeah, okay, so, yeah. Uh, I was in. I started off in Stoke Newington. No, sorry, I uh, sorry. I started in in Manor House and then went up to Stamford Hill and then over to Stoke Newington. But uh, kind of always, always in the Hackney borough. Were you with mainly Irish or English people, or who did you kind of fall in with? Um, at, at at start, definitely all Irish. It was definitely everyone I knew from from Dublin, right? You know, um, you, you you'd know a good few of them as well. They're still they're still, you know, um, but um, I, you know, as time went on, I got to know people from other nationalities as well. But I didn't, the, the core community was Irish. Yes. Did you, when you were in London at the time and, you know, you were you were kind of on the streets and you were playing probably trad tunes and a mixture of stuff, did you face any kind of discrimination or like racism towards Irish people on the street? I'm sure you have came across that. I never came across it on the street, but I, I definitely came across it when I was working in a bar. I, I can remember two kind of very notable moments while being in London that really made me realise that I was not the same, if you know what I mean, as the English people. Right, and, okay. Uh, 
one was the uh, Victoria bombing. Okay, yes, yes, uh, yes. Uh, I can actually, it, it was it was just really horrible. Like, um, I was working in the bar. There was a lot of squaddies used to drink in this bar. And, I'm, and uh, I, I'll have to excuse the French here now. But Don't worry, this, don't worry. Say what you like. This squaddie came up to me, put his arm around me, and he went, you know what? I hate the fucking paddies, but you're all right, mate. You're all right. And I was just standing there going, how am I meant to react to that? Like, I, I, it was just like, it was a bit chilling. And then uh, then the King's Cross, no, it wasn't King's Cross. It was another bombing. Was it King's Cross? Was that bombing? I, think, I, can't remember. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there was another big bombing. And there used to be a cafe that I used to go into before going to work to go in and get a, like a, a bacon butty or I was vegetarian. And so it would have been an egg butty. And um, I, it, it, it was, I wish I could remember which bombing it was. But anyway, I was the only Paddy who used to go in there. Mm. And I walked in this day and people that I would always nodded at me and everything, they all actually physically looked at me and turned their backs on me. Really? They turned away from you? And I, I felt about one foot tall. Oh. I, I, It was such a significant moment of feeling, oh, wow. Okay, no matter how long I'd be in this country, I'll always be different, and and they they will always judge us. Yes, the tires with the one brush, uh, you know. Now we are talking late eighties England. It, it was it was the middle of all that, really, because in the late eighties, you know, I mean, anybody who was Irish who went on the boat for you know any kind of length of time, whether it was a week, a month, or two years. They'll all tell you, you know, they've had stories. And if you were over there during those times of bombings, you were made feel like shit and made feel like, oh, you're a part of it. Yeah. I know some guys yeah, yeah. who were stopped on the boat, the ferry, and they were, you know, a couple of kind of rockers and stuff. And they said to them, are you guys terrorists? Are you in the IRA? And they said, joking, yeah, sure, of course, of course we are. Why wouldn't we be? And when they when the cops heard that, they were like, "Okay, we have to question." And they questioned them for hours and hours. And they said, "Lads, we we're only joking with you." And they were like, "No, we do, we don't like your kind." And you know, I'm, this is the problem. That whole terrorism thing made it really difficult for people in the eighties and early nineties for in in and around London and the UK for sure, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, we were branded. Your accent branded you. Yes. You know that 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 was basically it's the same as now. I know it's more extreme and doesn't not let the racism is much more apparent and strong, but it's the same as now somebody wearing a hijab mm. is branded as a Muslim and people, there's a distrust, you know, it's that kind of thing that it's just a profiling and a judgment, you know? Yeah, for sure. Because it's kind of, it's like, even when you consider with racism, um, you know, somebody one time you know nowadays people will say oh it's um you know they're they're you know indian or they're african or whatever but one time it was like oh no they're black it was a black guy or a black fella and the, the truth was maybe he was an indian or you know and people just kind of didn't really know the level of the ethnicity but they just said he's different to us so he's a black guy or he's a chinese fella or whatever and it was like that, I suppose, with the profiling, where they'd go, hey, it doesn't matter, they're all Irish, so, you know, we, they, they're the ones doing the damage at the moment, and you're thinking, I've nothing to do with terrorism, you know? Yeah, 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 no, there was, it was just, I mean, there was a lack of trust, and people were nervous, you know, um, and, you know, but the difference 
between the Irish and the other people who would be experiencing racism was nobody knew we were Irish after we opened our mouths. Yes, yes, yeah. When you were you were working in the bar, how long did you work there for? Let me think now. Um, about a year and a half. Yeah. Did you have enough then, or like, did you think, okay, this is too much, and I want to get out of this? Uh, no, I kind of like. I was working there full time, and then I got onto that course doing the sound engineering. So. I, I scaled back to part time and I, I just couldn't fit into two, to be honest with you. So, right. Right. Yeah. Did Did you have ambitions at the time when you were like doing the course to kind of work in that area or was just something you fell into? Um, I had, well, I was, I was, I was, I had an interest in music, you know, and, um, I, I, I don't know. I kind of fell into doing the course because uh, I heard about it and I went, oh, maybe I'll do that. And it was free to do it. And I said, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's A, a full-time full course that would keep me out of trouble for a year. I said, all right, I'll, I'll go and do that. Um, I, can, I, I, I can remember going in and um, seeing this massive, massive 32-channel test <laughs> going, what is that? And how am I ever going to get my head around? Oh my God! I you're like I I just stay in the first two channels and call me if you need me. (laughs) And then they brought they just it was just at the cusp of digital, so we were also having to study C Lab and Cubase. And the first six weeks of the course didn't even look at a desk; it was physics. Okay, six weeks of the physics of sound, and my head was melted. Because wow. as I said earlier, the only reason why I did physics in school was because it was on in the fellow school, you know. Yeah, the, the, the guys brought you there and little did you know, like five or six years later, oh God, maybe that yeah. visit to the boys' school actually paid off a little. <laughs> yeah, if I could do nothing except looking at the fellas and actually listen looking to the teacher. Looking at the fellas, but, yeah. You know? but, um, yeah. <laughs> but no, it was... Um, no, I, I, I got really into the sound. I, I, I'm, I'm quite techie, so it was... Um, it, 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 it washed well with me, and of course, I love music. So it um, it was it was a good marriage of interests. And so, did you you did that course, and did you actually get work out of it? Then were you able to get like kind of a an internship or anything anywhere? I was very lucky that I immediately got employed by the studio that uh, was running the course, and it was one of the top studios in London at the time called Goldmine. And um, it, it was an unbelievable studio. It had a, 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 a the the, the room where you'd be playing the music in was a, a floated room. It was a, it was basically a room within a room, and it was floated in mercury. Oh wow! So it was absolutely soundproof, and you had to step in and out through submarine doors to get into the room, and all sorts of stuff. But it was it, it was absolutely state of the art, like millions and millions and millions of quid gone gone into it. So wow, I was really, that, that was a great experience. It was an amazing experience. It was uh, yeah no, I, I was I was very very lucky. Um, but yeah, yeah. And did you? So, how many years then did you stay in London before you went back? You went back to Galway then, didn't you? I well, I went back to Dublin first, right? Um, and I tried a few months in Dublin, and that was in ninety, end in ninety ninety two. And uh, I, uh, I, I after a couple of months in Dublin, I was like, oh, this place is still melting my head. I, I just couldn't deal with it. That's a that's an interesting thing because, you know, obviously you had reasons for leaving the first time, you know, it was getting to you and you couldn't stick it and you wanted a sense of adventure. But when you came back then a few years later and you were a bit older, did you feel for a while, oh, you know, maybe I'll stay here for a few years or I'll kind of fall back into the scene, but it didn't work for you? Well, what happened was um, 
I don't know how will I how will I put this now? I I I kind of came back with rose coloured glasses, thinking it'll have changed. You know, yeah. a, few, a few people had moved, and uh, I was like, yeah, no, I'll, I'll give it a go. And then I tried to get work doing what I was had been working at in sound engineering, and I was laughed out of every recording studio in Dublin. Really? Like, and was like, what? Really? Yeah. Oh, what? You're a girl. You can make the tea. Like, basically. And I, I had to go, basically, to found one studio that would take me on as an intern. Um, And that, I, so, you know, I had to work for free to to uh, be able to try and make any kind of mark on myself. And, I, and then Temple Bar opened up their six-week sound engineering courses and we're turfing out sound engineers every six weeks and it's like but you couldn't learn sound engineering in six no weeks. no no they were turfing out lots of people onto the scene and um i i, I just thought you know right that's not going to happen so you know i got started having to work in bars again and i i, I don't know it just it, it just it melted my head it, like nothing much had changed in ireland really you know it was still pretty repressive it was still you know i i yeah, couldn't couldn't handle it. The thing is there that if you're in if you're in a city where you know even a smaller city where there's a lot of sexism and you know the mansplaining and all this kind of stuff, if you're in a bigger city, there's way more of it. And this is the problem, isn't it? Because you say, oh, there's more opportunities, but you still have to overcome more hurdles and the same type of hurdles every day. And as you said, you know, you walk in and you say, I have this kind of experience. And, you know, they're they're not looking at you. They're not looking at the words that are coming out of your mouth. They're kind of looking at, oh, it's a woman. And she's talking about recording and stuff. Uh, can you make some tea? You know, and and a 21-year-old, you know what I yeah. mean? They're, they're looking at going, go on, you can make tea if you want or whatever. But, um, but yeah, no, I like I, I was still kind of prepared to be making a go of it, you know. I, 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 did, I did want to make a go of it in Dublin um, and... But like, I, like I did get work in um, Whelan's, which was brilliant, and I got in uh, another place down in Temple Bar. Like that was a mix of bar work and stage work. But um, I, I, you know, there was there was, there was opportunity. I, I could have made I could have made something of it if I'd wanted to. But I ended up um, moving on to the next chapter of my life was was hitching down to Galway one weekend and never looked back. Was that something that you just went on a whim or you kind of had contacts down there? How did you kind of decide to go to Galway? I didn't know a sinner there. There was somebody I was sharing a gaff with who had never been to Galway and neither had I. I honestly had never been to Galway. So um, we just took a notion one weekend and said, let's hitch. And we hitched down to Galway. Wow. And um, actually bumped, bumped into some people and met some of the people that are still to this day, my best friends, met them that very first night in Galway. Wow. What, when was that? Was that the early 90s or the late 80s? No, that was the early 90s. Early yeah. 90s. Yeah. OK. And and did you find the scene like completely different on a smaller level or was it completely different from Dublin for you? It, it was very much a lot of the scene that I had been involved in in London, which was like the squatting scene and the left field kind of alternative scene a lot of them when they moved to Ireland moved to the west and moved to Galway and it was, a, it, was a, it was a bit of a finding my tribe moment when I got to Galway I went Jamie Mac like look this is where they've all landed 
Yeah, I, I remember that in Galway, obviously. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people, I suppose, with with the big bag of sticks, gigs and stuff, you'd meet all the different people there. But it's mad because in much the same way that you have now, like, you know, not not I don't want to say refugees, but you have people from other countries coming in. I remember at that time in Galway, but they, they used to say, oh, the New Age Travellers or the Krusties, which is the terrible name, but it was still floated around. But the truth was, there was a big community of people that were very different to the people in Galway. And it was like a whole new thing, wasn't it? Yeah, big time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, really big time. But it was very vibrant. Yeah. You know, there was a really, really vibrant music scene. And, you know, you mentioned the Big Bag of Sticks and, and you know, bands like that. They were they brought a lot of people together. And... um absolutely yeah and i mean Branskys and the west side tavern and these kind of places and 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 when i suppose now you know it's funny when you when all these people get together and they've kids and their lives are very different nowadays and some have settled and some are more professional but the one thing they have great memories of all those times don't they in in and around salt hill and the west side of galway and busking and shop street and it was a great little community wasn't it Ah, it was brilliant, crack. It was absolutely brilliant, you know, and 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 solid, and solid, yeah. Did you find, you know, because obviously when you had been in London and you had been squatting, I'm sure you faced a lot of problems from, you know, landlords and you know the police and everything. Uh, did you find that that was very different to how it was in Dublin? Like, if you were with the same kind of people in around Ireland, was it a different kind of? Uh, feeling or you know did you feel in ireland it give you more chances mm, no definitely not um like london uh, the, 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 like there's a, like let's forget about the irish thing do you know what i mean because that was they they were moments but they, they weren't that's not how it was in general and london was very tolerant you could get you, anything went anything goes in london you know whereas um like galway in the in the early 90s you know, yes, there was that great scene, but it, it the, the locals didn't want anything to do with it. There was a lot of prejudice towards it. There was a huge amount of prejudice. And, uh, oh, sure, look, you know, there, there was, on average, maybe two pubs in town that would allow you in if you had a head of dreadlocks. You know, and, like, it, was, it was like, yeah. So like, we made our own fun, you know, like, but, um, but no, there was, a, there was a lot of prejudice and there was a lot of, um, you, you, you couldn't... Uh, uh, this sounds terrible because I've got so many great Galway friends now, but you know we're we're talking about a different era. But uh, they didn't want to know you. Yeah, I I remember, and I remember like I wasn't obviously in the scene, but I remember obviously with my sister Caroline, and you know you were great friends, and and Colin and everything. And I but I remember you know going to gigs and kind of being around all you guys. And kind of seeing how people treated you. And, and I remember even, you know, when I started busking and, you know, Colin and Caroline would be busking and you'd see how people would treat them and treat other people around them that were just there to listen to music and stuff. And as you said, if it was like the the head of dreadlocks, it was like they looked at you totally different. And it was a shame, really. But it's one of these things, I suppose, that happens throughout every kind of decade where there's ignorance on the part of a lot of people. They're like, who are these people? What do they want? And they don't look at them as people. They look at them as kind of intruders. Yeah, it's stranger fear. Yeah, it is. You know, it is. It is, definitely. You know, and, and, come on, you know, like you're, you're, 
again, go back to 90s Ireland, early 90s Ireland. Um, it, it, this sounds, I'm, I'm probably going to phrase this wrong, but it, it was quite still quite a closeted place, you know. Mm. You know, people lived for the old late, late show on a Friday night and they had their, you know, they, they everybody had a bit of a system. And, you know, just like normal mainstream life was, you know, pretty straightforward. And then you get this bunch of kind of weirdos arriving into your town with dreadlocks and different accents and, you know, out in the street busking and circus atmosphere kind of thing. It would have, it would have thrown you if, if you, if you didn't have any understanding of it. Yeah, because I think for a lot of people, they'd be thinking, you know, I'm out here on the farm working. I'm going to my factory job. And, you know, these hippies or whatever you want to call them are just playing music on the streets and bushing and drinking and having great crack. And, you know, they're probably doing loads of drugs and everything. And, and you know, they don't kind of see it as, you know, maybe they're not working. But at that point in their life, they're having that kind of nomadic adventure. And, you know, some of those people could be really professional and go on to do great things. But you can't judge someone just because they are doing something with their life that's not the same as yours, you know. No, but I, I also have an understanding of where that stranger fear comes in. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the stuff, the stuff I've done later in life, I now have a, a greater understanding of why people have fears. And, you know, I do a lot of work these days to help people overcome those stranger fears. So I, I have a better understanding now, you know. Yeah, and, you know, I always remember... I remember being in a house one time or oh, maybe about 20 years ago. And I always remember this, you know, someone someone said to me once in the 80s and 90s in Ireland, was it very racist there? And I said, it wasn't so much that it was racist. It was pure ignorance. And as you said, that stranger fear where people didn't understand other cultures. And I was in this house and the, the father of the one of the girls in the house, he came home and he said, you know, I'm after seeing a black fella in town and he was there doing his shopping like everybody else. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, yeah. And he said, I've never seen a black man before. And I thought to myself, but what what were you thinking? He said, no, I just, I, I was kind of shocked that he was there in my town or whatever. And, you know, it kind of struck me. He wasn't being racist in any form. He just literally, it was a culture shock for him. And it's this ignorance. Like if you, you know, now it's great. Children grow up together with all types of ethnicities and colors and everything. And they don't even look at it differently. But, you know, if you grow up in an all white community and all of a sudden somebody of color or different race comes in uh, when you're 17 or 18, you know, you're like, oh, who's this? I've never seen this kind of person before. And that time, you know, we were just a small island and it was very closed and people didn't really come here. Everybody was going abroad, you know. That's it. Like it was a, it was a country that people left. It wasn't a country that people came to. And and I think that's why it kind of, yeah, it, it, you know, just to sort of justify what I was saying there a few minutes ago, it was like we were closeted. We were very closeted because nobody came to us. Like we just had our own little bubble, you know. Like you just reminded me of a, of a story when I was in London um, my aunt came over to visit me with with my little cousin, and he was probably about seven or eight at the time, you know, if if that. And anyway, we got on a bus, and uh, we were sitting on the top of the double decker bus, and at the very front, and there was this kind of glass window that you could look down and see the driver, you know. And we were going on a bus down into this market area that was a very black area, 
So next thing he pipes up, he looks down through the window and he went, Ma, Ma, you won't believe it. Even the driver's black. <laughs> and I was like, well, I just wanted to die on the spot. Like, but it was, but it was the innocence, you know, like it, the, what, he hadn't seen any black people before in his life, you know. And but, that's, uh, yeah. that's true, isn't it? Because, I mean, that's where, for me, a lot of the time, you know, children say it the best because it's it, it's coming from a great place. They're just innocent. When an adult makes a mistake because they have a culture shock, you know, straight away, it's like racism. And a lot of the time it's not because racism for me kind of is something where there's a kind of a hatred and uh, an ignorance of the other person or you don't want to get to know. You know, because everybody can have a culture shock. And like, I'm sure when you went to London the first time, you met kind of races that maybe you'd never met before, but it opened your eyes to that. And you you were realizing, okay, well, they're not that much different. They do things differently. And, you know, they might have different cultures and religions. But, you know, when we sit down to have a coffee, we're all very much the same, no? Yeah, no, that's true. And that's like, you know, like to go back to when we were talking about Kimbara earlier, you know, where I said there's a, a huge amount of the locals are returned immigrants. They have a global view. They've already they've they've they have met other cultures. They've met people from all around the place, and I think that's what makes them very, to- most of them very tolerant now. You know, but I don't you know just to, you know, put a caveat on what we're talking about now. Like I I I I really don't believe that there's any excuse for any kind of ignorance in terms about race now. Where like. All, all, all our mainstream media, all our soaps, all our films, all our social media, everything gives everyone an opportunity to learn about other nationalities. So, you know, the, the, there's there's never an excuse for racism of any of any sort. I just sort of kind of wanted to put that in as a caveat. Like, you know. you're right because, like I was saying earlier, the thing about it was, it, it, you know, back ten, twenty years ago, we didn't have that information highway. We didn't kind of have that thing where you could find out things. You could Google stuff. You just relied on what was on the media and the news. And now there's so much more information. So. The thing is that if somebody isn't informed now about racism and other cultures, they have to get informed. And you can't make as many mistakes as you used to in the past, can you? No, no, definitely not. And, and you know, like, yeah, no, I, you know, I mean, that, that, that's the thing. You, you can't. And like, you know, we, we, like, we grew up with Glenn Rowe, for crying out loud, mm, you know. Yeah, in, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> like, it's, it's a different story now, you know. Um but yeah, yeah, yeah. Glenn Rowe was always like, "Oh shit, I have to do my homework." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, you know, like uh, no. You're... So come here and talk about your daughter, Shona. Tell tell us about Shona. Ah, she's brilliant. She's she's such a she's such a cool kid. Um, Shona's living over in England now, and uh, has done. She went over and she went over when she was about sixteen and a half, following in her mammy's footsteps. But her her uh, dad lives over there, so she she sort of all her life would go back and forth, you know, on holidays over to him anyway. Okay. And um, so she's she lives there. Now. My I have a brother living over there as well, so she's she's got good family contacts and everything. But she came back here for a uh, lockdown one, which was brilliant. M- Mammy was very happy to have her here, um, and we're very close. We're we're very close. We're we're in some respects more. Like does she prefer the British way of life now to the Irish, or how does it feel for her? I couldn't answer that, Simon. Um, yeah. When she's here, she's very Irish, and um, when she's over there, she just does her thing. 
Um, you know, I, I, I think that does an awful lot more opportunities over there for her. You know, like she's she's got her groove over there. I get it, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One thing, Maeve, you, you had mentioned to me, you know, um, that you lived mobile with Shauna for a good while when she was younger, didn't you? How was that experience? Yeah, well, it was, it was, it was, it was very easy. I mean, like I, I'd say to anybody who's, 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 you know, planning a small child or has a small child, move around as much as you can until they have to go to school because then you're, you're, you're pinned down after that. But uh, no, I, like, well, it was in a band. Myself and her dad were in a band together. Right. Um, so we were doing a lot of touring. We were we were touring Europe a lot, um, and um, ended up in Germany where we kind of settled for a while, you know. But still, constantly touring. Um, at the time in Germany, there was a new Irish bar opening every single week. It was an, a, a national obsession over there, and uh, we were an Irish band, and we were just uh, no end of work, just touring from one end of the week to the other so we we had a bus and we lived on the bus and what kind of bus was it like was it like a school bus or what kind yeah, of bus it was a big 32 foot bus it's a length of a length of a bus airing bus really <laughs> but we started off in a something smaller like we were in something smaller and uh but then as she got a bit bigger we, we we went for this big huge bus did you have to like did you get the bus and use it as it was or did you have to kit it out and kind of make it adaptable we bought it kind of semi-converted. Somebody had started the job but hadn't finished it. So, uh, luckily, Shona's dad is a brilliant carpenter. So he 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 got stuck into it and did a proper conversion on it. And yeah, then we took off with it. But what was really funny was it was registered as a camper van, even though it was a lentical bus airing bus. <laughs> a camper van. It, it was hilarious because like you know, we booked it onto the ferry to go over to France. <laughs> As a camper van, like, I nearly had a heart attack when we arrived at the ferry with the thing. Like <laughs> the operator was like, "That's not a fucking camper van. Where yeah, are you going?" Look at the books. It says it's a camper van on the book. <laughs> wow! And did you did you you know like obviously you were in that in hot and cold weather. Was it hard in the winters? I wonder with it. Um, the uh, in the bus, no, it was really cozy. But uh, like we had a lovely wood stove on it and everything like that. The previous vehicle we had before that was we were in the Alpine regions in the winter and that was really, really cold. Wow. Was wow. Yeah, what was Germany like? You were living in Germany. What was it like? Did, was There was a great atmosphere and a great culture over there at the time of the Irish music and the German bars and stuff. I'm sure it was a really nice time, was it? It was a really lovely time and I, I, I couldn't think of a nicer place to have a toddler in, like they, it, it, the Germans are all about growing the toddler and and letting them grow without pushing education on them. Like if the children don't start learning, learning to read or write until they're seven in Germany, you know. Like it's all about play, and it's all about um, visual stimulation and everything like that. And uh, you know, she went to kindergarten there and everything like that, and she was so happy. It was a really, really great place to to be. Yeah. Totally, The funny thing is, um, I remember once I went touring like for three months around ne the Netherlands and Germany and stuff playing music. And, you know, and I remember I landed in Dusseldorf and it was mad because um, I started busking on the street. And this um, this guy came up to me and he said, he said, what you're singing sounds amazing. He said, but 
he said, these German people are going to work now. They don't really care about music. <laughs> so he said, <laughs> in the, he said, in the evening, maybe it'd be different. Yeah. But it's funny, isn't it? Because in Germany like that, they can be very focused on what they're doing. But then when they want to party and stuff. So you have to pick your moments sometimes, don't you? Yeah, it takes, it takes a while to adjust to the culture. Definitely. Uh, like, yeah, there's, there's none of the, the, the wildness of the Irish <laughs> in it. But uh, I think, uh, like, you know, we were simultaneously trying to be in a band, but also be parents of a small toddler. And um, it, it, just everything in society there is geared towards making it easy for you as parents of a small toddler, you know. So like to the point that um, uh, like the, the the bars that would be booking us for gigs, they were aware that we had a child and they would give us an apartment and they would, you know, make sure that everything was in place because like, we, we'd always bring a babysitter with us, you know. And they'd make sure everything was in place there to make everything really, really easy for us to be able to do our gig and also have our child on tour with us, you know. Um, it, it was it was really lovely, you know. That would have met up with your sister a few times there now because they, 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 you know, they came over gigging and they'd be great reunions when they'd come over and we, we'd, we'd always do a, a couple of gigs with that, with their band, you know, and it'd be a good crack. We'd have, we'd have a bit of the wild Irish stuff going on then, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and it's great. So I mean, you felt very welcome there in that time, and and it was as you said, it they made it very convenient and very easy to have a child with you. Whereas in some places, it'd be kind of like, what are you doing? But they made it very easy. They did, yeah, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. It was like, yeah, no, they they were really, yeah, this is fine, you know. Yes, you need, yes, you need a space for your child and your babysitter. This is no problem. We arrange it for you, and it's um, no no questions about it. It's just sorted for you. That's nice. That's nice. And do you still go back to Germany sometimes to visit those places or? No, I don't. Um, see, like we had a base there, right? Which was a place called mm. Tübingen, which was south of Stuttgart. But um, like we might go back to Tübingen once every two weeks. Do you know what I mean? Like we were on the road all the time. Uh, you were, you, had, a, you had, had a circus. Yeah, there was a circus. And, and, and Germany is a huge country. So, no, you were, you were just on the road all the time. But uh, you know, you'd come back for a break and then you'd spend a few weeks in Tübingen, you know, and then you'd be off again. But um, I've lost track of what I was going to say. To have I gone back? I've gone back to Germany a good few times, but there's no one particular place where I would say I, I need to revisit, you know. Like Berlin, Berlin is somewhere I go back for a lot. Yeah, Berlin, yeah, I can imagine it was a great city. And oh, I love it. after you left Germany, did you go back to Galway or Dublin or where did you go back to then? Well, back to Galway, yeah. You started doing an edu- um, a degree, did you, and stuff? <laughs> At the ripe age of 30, yeah. Uh, I, I took a note. Why, why not? Yeah, well, I, you know, I like interspersing all these times, I had spent uh, time living in Spain, you know. And, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I had good Spanish. And I thought, you know what? It might be good to go and do a degree in Spanish just to have that in the back pocket. Yeah, you were, li- where, where were you living in Spain? In Galicia, was it, or? Well, a couple of different places. I was in the Basque country for a while. Okay. And uh, I joined. I joined a circus. That's another story. I joined a circus in Basque. Country. Really? <laughs> um, and then, a, a, Spanish, a Spanish circus. Yeah, that that was just mayhem. Um, <laughs> and uh, so traveled traveled the Basque country doing doing circusy kind of stuff. And then, um, yeah, then about a year later. Headed down to Granada, lived in Granada for a while, 
and then came back to Galway again. I, I've done a, I've done a lot of yo-yoing, Simon. You know. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, you kind of go where the wind takes you, and and when the moment arises, don't you? I do, I do. Yeah, no, like uh, honestly, that's that's me. I just go, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll go and do that. Here's the thing: it's like me. I I look sometimes at my list of addresses and places I've lived. And, you know, sometimes you go, Jesus, I'm a real gypsy. And, you know, but the thing about it is, uh, you know, look at as I get older now, I look back and I think, you know, it's great because you're only proven to yourself when you look at all those addresses, all the adventures and experiences you've had and all the different places you've lived, you know, because we kind of get stuck in this thing of you have to be in one place and settle all the time. I think you have to be happy and you have to move where you need to move and you have to try things out, no? Yeah, you only live once, right? Yeah, you, know? you, you only live once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't experience it all. Yeah, no, that's 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 where my head's at about it, you know. But um, but yeah, but back to the college thing. Um, yeah, I, you know, so I'd, I, over my various trips and time spent in Spain, I'd picked up good gutter Spanish. Yeah, and I, of course, I thought I was fluent. I thought I was brilliant at it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, I I decided I'd go to college and and uh, you know. Prove, prove to the world I was brilliant at it, but uh, as it turned out, I was, I was absolutely useless. I couldn't write it. I couldn't read it. I couldn't. I was. I I I knew that stringing a certain st- amount of sounds together would get me X, Y, or Z. You had the pigeon Spanish, so it got it worked there. Yeah, but I didn't realize I was thrown in the Spanish equivalents of "give us the fucking bleeding whatever." Like you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yes, I yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but but I I I had the I had the when I came over here first. You know, we're here seven years, and so before I came over, I did a you know like a part time uh, diploma in NUIG in Spanish, and you know I thought ah yeah you know it should be okay, but like I realized you know. I, it was ridiculous because the amount of stuff you learn in Irish colleges or universities as relation in relation to a language is nothing. You know, you come over here and it doesn't work for you at all because it's you have to learn, you have to speak it, you have to speak it every day. And over, I, you know, I always tell this when I started to do my Spanish course in NUIG, it was, you know, it was great and it was lovely people and everything there. But I remember we had three hours every Thursday and the first hour was grammar and stuff. And the second hour, uh, we would speak. And the third hour was about Mayan culture. And I remember one fella said to me, I didn't fucking come here to learn about Mayan culture. I'm fucking paying money for this. And they're teaching me about things that I don't need to know about. And it was kind of like, it, it was like an appreciation of the culture and the language. But we kind of felt like we'd rather speak for that other hour than learn about the history of, you know, the Mayan culture and stuff. So in, in truth, it's sometimes these college courses drag out a bit and you don't really learn as much as you'd like. Try doing a four-year degree in it, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's when they read. So, so, so tell us, um, so you did the, the degree and um, you were teaching English as well, were you? Yeah, was that in Galway or did you go abroad teaching English? No, I actually started teaching it in Galway. I, I, I did the TEFL course with the intentions of going abroad, but... It, but uh, uh, again, I kind of seem to be quite lucky in, in that the places that I do courses in tend to offer me jobs, which is brilliant. So that's what happened. I did I did a half a course in the Bridge Mills in Galway, and they uh, they said you want a job, and I said yeah, go on, and all right. And uh, so, was that in the Galway Language Centre? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's where I did my TEFL place. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you know, I was mad. 
<laughs> I have to tell this story because it just shows you how when I went in to do my TEFL course, my brother Charlie had done his and he was working in the Atlantic College in, you know, in, in Salt Hill. So I went in and, you know, when I left school, I left at Intercert and I did a carpentry apprenticeship. And, you know, at, at the time I didn't want to stay in school and I wanted to kind of work with wood and all that kind of stuff. But then later, you know, I was kind of, I got into teaching music and, and then, you know, I kind of, as I got a bit older, I was getting more academic. There was, there was intelligence in there, but it was hidden, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, um, so, so I, I went into the bridge mills and I said to them, I'd like to do, um, a TEFL course. And they said to me, okay, you just need this and you're leaving certain this kind of stuff or college diploma or whatever. And I was like, oh, well, I, I don't have a leaving certain. He said, oh, you can't. You can't do it without that. And he said, why Why don't you have a leaving cert? And I said, well, I, I got a trade. I was a carpenter. And he said to me, oh, he said, we don't have many carpenters coming in doing it. And I said, why, is it not allowed or something? And he was laughing and he said, no, no, it's just strange. And I said, well, there's something new every day. And so I said to him, so can I do it or what? And he said, I, I don't know. He said, I, I, I've never had this situation. So I kind of convinced him anyway to let me do it. And he said, look, We'll we'll see how it goes, and you know if you if you prove to me, he said, because a lot of these people in here doing it are kind of um, you know academics and doing college courses and all this stuff, and some of them are teachers and stuff, and um, so I came in and just worked my arse off for that intensive month, you know, and it's a tough month, and but at the end of it, when I passed, he said to me, "Look, Simon, you know I have to apologize to you." He said because when you come in, I kind of made you feel like you couldn't do it and I kind of thought in my head you wouldn't be able to do it so he said the next time somebody comes in like that I'm never going to make that mistake again he said so I'm saying sorry and I'm saying thank you for opening my mind a little but you know it's one of those things you learn isn't it and don't judge a book by its cover absolutely absolutely yeah no that's brilliant that's a great story Simon Brilliant. Yeah, um, and you have to push. Some sometimes you have to push. So you 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 did the course in there, and then you you started working there. Yeah, yeah. So I got a full time job there straight away, which was brilliant. Yeah, I was really lucky. Wow. Were you teaching there, or were you like were you teaching the students, or were you doing the training of the other teachers? I was teaching students. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. it cool. Was, uh, great work. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can only. Um, Sure, you know yourself, like, you know, it's, it, can, it can kind of burn you out teaching TEFL after a while, you know. You need to take, you need to take long breaks from it. <laughs> yeah, I'm still a TEFL teacher here in Spain. And I mean, it's great in some gigs you get, some places you work and it can really, you know, you enjoy going to it. But then there's other places you teach and it's very run of the mill and, you know, and it, it's just like that. I some years, I, I'm here seven years now, when I look back at some of the places I've worked, I say, oh, that was a great experience or that was a shit experience. But, you know, it's just power for the course. And um, it, But sometimes, yeah, it, it's funny because a lot of people do TEFL and they do it for a year or two, you know, and they, it's something to bring them on to the next thing. But when you, you find teachers here in Spain and in the Philippines and in Asia who are teaching for 20 years and Sometimes, you know, they love it, but sometimes they burn out a little with the two. Yeah, I know, definitely. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. I enjoyed it, but it's a bit Groundhog Day as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I um, yeah, but I mean, like, I, I, the stuff I learned, the, the, like, the, the, the methods you learn of teaching in TEFL, you can apply to teaching anything, you know, and I do love to teach. But, 
you know, you, you would have, what, what was it? The, um, practice, pres- presentation, practice and production, you know. And production, yeah, yeah. yes. You yeah, know, yeah. And, and you can apply that to teaching anything to anyone, you know. It's, you're basically teaching people how to do something by themselves, you know. And and the truth is, if you're some people are just natural teachers, and so you could put them teaching anything, and they just have to learn what they're teaching. But when it comes to that presentation, and you know, and showing the students, they have a natural aptitude for it. So you know, there's some ter- teachers out there who are teachers, and they're terrible teachers, and they know all the academic stuff, but they don't have a method, or they don't have that bedside manner like the doctors have. You have to kind of have a vocation, whether it's music, English, whatever you're teaching. You have to have a little bit of vocation and a love of people, no? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, and 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 it it's always it always helps to like to chat, you know. <laughs> and um, I I always think, I always find it it was a bit like a doing a teaching English. It's it's, it's a bit like a, a performance, isn't it? You know, it's like it is. It is. You have an hour to get an idea across to some people, particularly if you're an absolute beginner, who are just looking at you blankly and they haven't got a clue what you're telling them. So it's all about doing actions and trying to demonstrate what you're trying to say to them and like i i found that i loved it but at the same time it, it would be i suppose i was going back home at the end of the day to a young kid as well so i was a bit i was it, it was knackering you know but uh, I, I i did totally enjoy it yeah and and it's one of those things you know i it's funny now as we're doing the podcast now but i remember even a couple of years ago i'd be doing classes and people would say to me, you should do like a YouTube channel or like a podcast or something, you know, because you've got great chat and, you know, you know the questions to ask. And I said, ah, sure, who knows? You never know what could come up. But it's funny because, as you said, English is like that. Sometimes it's like just a good chat that you can keep going without any alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay, so listen, um, Maeve, tell us, um, let's talk a little about your, you know, the whiskey stone company this is your new kind of you know company or and tell us how it started and what happened where did you get the idea i'm i'm it's i'm very excited about it because it's it's actually really working it's brilliant <laughs> um i and and it sounds like a made up story how it all started but it actually happened like i was in a bar in vegas <laughs> and uh, I I was sitting. I'd never been to Vegas before. My daughter convinced me to go. With two of us to go there, and sitting in this bar, and there's this guy beside me, and he's got these rocks in his glass. I mean, literally rocks. And you know, in America now, people don't just sit at the bar and chat to each other the way we would here. You know what I mean? But I was just a, the curiosity was killing me. So I was like, uh, I just turned around. I said, "Sorry, Mister, but do you mind me asking you what what is that in your glass?" And he went, "Ma'am, they're whiskey rocks." And I said, "Right, what are they then?" And he said, well, you know, they, they, they make you drink cold, but they don't dilute it. And I went, all right. And I didn't think I had more of it. I went, oh, that's a brilliant idea. You know, but I'm, I'm you know, didn't, really didn't think I had more of it. Now, for years, I had been um, making these. How many years ago was that? How many years ago that was that? That uh, was late 2018. Okay, okay. Uh, but for years before that, I'd been making these drinks coasters that was slate. And um, I used to just do, you know, little decorations on them and sell them on Christmas markets and things. Um, and um, maybe about four years ago, for a joke, I had done some Father Jack ones just saying, drink, feck, girls, arse on them. And I put them up on Facebook and I swear to God, I nearly broke the internet with them. 
Like, and I, I literally done them as a joke. And so many people go hold me going, can I get a set of them? Can I get a set of them? And I was like, Jamie, I only did them for a joke. But yeah, right, no problem. So they were flying out. Anyway, moved back forward to the Vegas uh, thing. So I, Mr. Whiskey Rocks, a uh, conversation had, everything that was grand. And Seth and went back to the hotel. And I that night, I sat up, bolt upright, and I went, oh, my God, Father Jack's Whiskey Stones. How would I do that? How would I do that? That'd be brilliant. So I had I had my poor daughter's head melted then with me trying to figure out how I was going to do it. And, and we, we had we, we were just at the start of a big journey we did. We we took off and did a six month travel around the world together. And uh, I think for most of that six months I had her head melted with me trying to figure out how I was going to do this. But I had it all sus by the time I got back. And uh so yeah, started production and um it was it, I, I was really still thinking small just go away market that kind of thing you know but uh, then I, lockdown was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me because we weren't allowed to trade in go away market and I had a big pile of these whiskey stones going what am I going to do with them and uh, so I, I went online I, I, I learned how to build a website and learned how to market it and um, I'm, I'm very proud to say that um, I'm, I'm now having a, a really big turnover and uh, the Irish Times and Radio 2 and all sorts of people are raving about me and it's um, it's got legs it's it's been really brilliant I'm, I'm, I'm working seven days a week on it like it's I'm, I'm absolutely just to the wall busy um, and it, it, no it's, it's amazing and I've now just taken the next big step because I was um getting someone else to do all my engravings on the stones and on the on the boxes but um i now just bought the equipment myself which was a terrifying second mortgage moment kind of thing but i bought the equipment so i can do everything now myself so explain to us i've seen the boxes and like they have the engraving so were you doing that by hand or someone was doing it yeah i'll just backtrack a bit because obviously we're we've got listeners and not people who can see what we're talking about so just to sort of be clear, whiskey stones are little cubes of marble, basically. And what you do is, I, I, I have them and I've presented them in a little wooden box that looks a little bit like the old school pencil case with the slide, you know, the wooden pencil with the lid off. And it's about half size of one of them. So you put the box into the freezer for a couple of hours and then um, it, it, this, the marble stones go ice cold and then you put them into your drink and it makes the drink cold without diluting it. So that's the concept. Um so what I was doing... What kind of marble is it? It's it's just a grey marble. Like mar- marble's the safest uh, stone to use, most food safe stone. It doesn't it doesn't soak up flavours. You know, some stones would take in flavours, you know, or, you know, it, like it, you'd use it in whiskey and then you'd try to use it and, you know, wash them, but they'd still, ha- still have the, the, the scent of the whiskey in it. Whereas marble, like chocolatiers and cheesemongers and butchers all use marble for a reason. It's because it's it's pretty non-porous you know and it's and it's very food safe so anyway uh yeah so i i i, I basically i do the designs i i well i i i know i i i'll elaborate on that i i come up with ideas for designs and then i have a great artist friend she's an amazing artist lily johnson um who, who lives in the village and i go to lily with a really crap sketch and go this is kind of what i'd like can you do a better job of that for me? And then she does an absolutely awesome job for me of it. And uh, then, and then I have an engraver. Does she do the? She does the actual stones or the boxes? The boxes, the drawing for the boxes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
And then um, then I have a, a, a fantastic company up in Dublin, a lovely uh, crowd called Custom Wood Designs, who have a big industrial laser and they laser engrave the 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 lids for me. And then the lids come back to me and then I fin- hand finish them with, I paint them. So it's a, it's a bit of a collaborative exercise, but um, I, it's, it's grand for the industrial level stuff. I've got really, fo- you know, really popular ones like the Father Jack ones or I've got gin stones and it's that. So um, Gary is absolutely brilliant and drunk for doing that. But I'm also getting an awful lot of requests for personalised stuff. Personalised stuff is too small of an order. It's too difficult to do, no? No, well, it's too small of an order for the, the amazing guy up in Dublin who does my bigger orders, like, because it's, you know, it's, you know, sending something across the country over to Dublin to wait for it to be sent back. And, you know, he's firing up a big, huge piece of equipment to do one off. It's not, it wouldn't be fair on him and it wouldn't be fair on me. So I've bought the equipment now, which I only got in a couple of days ago, where I'd be able to do bespoke stuff now, one off. Go back to the market in there because. You were saying you had to learn how to kind of do the marketing and build the website. So is it a case for you now that you're like concentrating on particular countries or you're kind of working on a little piece of every country? I think I, I, this is probably the the um, story of many a self-employed person in Ireland is that uh, I'd say four hours of my day at least is spent on marketing and the rest of it is actually doing what I want to do. Um no, seriously, you know, it, it, particularly in, in, in these COVID times, the only way you forgot a shop window is to uh, use the internet as a shop window. Four hours a day, at least, is spent on marketing. Um, and I, at the moment, I have been really targeting the Irish market because there's such a big push on shop local, buy Irish, uh, all that. And and it's 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 a fantastic wave, and and it's very I'm very proud to be part of that wave. And when I say I spend four hours a day, it's not marketing. It's not just marketing my own stuff. You know, there's a great camaraderie uh, amongst a lot of Irish businesses right now, and and we're all helping each other out, and we all push each other, and we all share each other's posts and collaborate with each other. And you know, um, it's 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 a very special time for Irish businesses who have managed to embrace the the internet end of things. I do feel really, really gutted for retailers and food traders and bars and things like that who no matter what they do they can't they 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 they, they, they can't tap into that, you know, because it's not something sellable on the internet. Um I'm I'm lucky. I'm very lucky that I have a product that I can sell and post. You know, you have a stall, don't you, in, in the Kinvara Farmer's Market and, and stuff. And Galway Market as well, yeah. Yeah, and the Galway Market. So a lot of those people, because, you know, obviously maybe they can't meet, so they're going to have to learn new skills to start selling stuff on the internet, crafts and stuff. And before they might have been happy with what they were doing, but now they're like, oh, it's too many restrictions. I have to do it from home. Yeah, uh, and like, uh, yeah, the skill set you need, is is enormous and I, it's it's a learning curve every day for me trying to learn like you know I mean first of all I had to learn how to build a website anyway do you know what I mean that, that was a learning curve and um it, it's 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 a, it's an entirely new skill set doing sales via social media and the internet it's it's just so different from meeting people at, who come up to your market stall and chatting to them um and I really 
I mean, much as I, I in like, I'm a salesperson, I'm a business person. So, I mean, obviously I love a sale, you know, but um, I, I really, really miss the, the banter standing on your market stall in the hallway on a Sunday and just people coming up and a bit of haggling bit of haggling or just the chat where are you from and what brought you to Galway and how long are you here for and just the, that, the, the banter I miss that you don't get that with um, you, you know you're not getting that with the internet you just get a little ping oh somebody's bought something um, now you know that's where I, I'm, I'm very active on Twitter and, and Instagram and Facebook because I like to have the banter so I banter with people but um, it's time consuming it is time consuming but you know you've got to love it yeah You've got well. I mean, that's great, and I I think it's a great initiative, you know. And like sometimes these great ideas can come from somewhere or nowhere. But the the it's great, like that something inspired you, and you followed through with it, and now it's like doing really well for you, and people love it, and you know, and it's something unique, isn't it? I mean, as you said, it 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 might you might have seen it in another co- country or another continent, but then you go, oh, it's not actually here. So there's a market there for me. So I'm going to jump into that pool. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, the, the other thing is um, that the the emerging whiskey and gin distillery market in Ireland is is it's enormous, and and it's something that the Irish are doing very very well and getting world renowned for. But what what there is a gap is is that there isn't that much in the lines of Irish whiskey accessories, which is kind of where the I, I'm I'm taken, you know. But um, the, you know, as I was saying to you about the camaraderie within Irish businesses, the 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 Irish whiskey world is very very small still, and um, I've had nothing but goodwill and support. Like I was speaking today to the guy who set up the Burren Distillery, and uh, that's going to be a, you know that's that's going to be a beautiful whiskey. He's got a really amazing vision with this distillery. Now he's had his whiskey; it's been distilled for a year. It's sitting in the barrels now, but you can't call it whiskey until it's been in the barrels three years. Um, it's does it does does it does it's a very exciting time in the Irish whiskey industry, and in, in the bespoke small small Irish whiskey industry, and and loads of them haven't come on haven't come on stream yet, and won't for another couple of years because they're waiting for it to be mature enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's let's change uh, topic a little bit, Maeve. Um, so, for example, with your music, you know, you were playing in, in Fling and Falch and a few different bands. So the, tell us a little about Fling, because, you know, you did some extensive touring around Asia and everything. And you you did, you toured in Asia with Falch as well, didn't you? Just was one of the best experiences of my life. I'd say that. It was um, an amazing coming together of really amazing musicians, you know, and um, we, 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 we gelled, you know, and we, we wrote an album and we toured that album and we were very, very lucky with it. Like, um, we, we, we just got noticed by people that were quite happy to take us traveling and take us abroad. And like, in particular, there's a one guy I'd, I'd have to give very special mention to Owen Murphy, who was based over in, in Shanghai, and I stuck my neck out to Owen Murphy because I'd heard that he was looking for an Irish band to play the Shanghai Irish St. Patrick's Festival. And he didn't know me from Adam. And I was just very cheeky and got in touch. And I said, well, if you're looking for an Irish band, we'll come over to you. Um, and uh, he he, uh, he said, oh, yeah, I'll think about that and everything. And then, then uh, he said, if you can get Culture Ireland funding, I'll have you. 
So I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I applied for the funding and then didn't hear out and back. And next thing, lastminute.com got noticed that we had got the funding, got back onto own and like literally had about 10 days notice. He went, no problem, get on a plane, come over. So that kind of started a great working relationship with the own and the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs over in Shanghai. And when, when you go to places like Shanghai to play for something like the St. Patrick's Festival, which goes on for a good week, everybody that's involved in Irish stuff over there will want a piece of it. So we were doing work for On Board Bia, we were doing work for the Asian GAA, we were doing it for the Dublin Institute of Technology had a, a kind of a, an outlier out there. and So we were we were gigging all day, every day, at all sorts of events and things like that. And it went really well. So we were invited back again and again and again over there, which was just fantastic. Um, and that became... Uh, That's really good. Yeah, no, it, it was brilliant. And um, we were really, really, really well looked after as well. Like, you know, like just so looked after and such such amazing experiences. Um, and then uh, we also were very involved with a guy in um, Denmark called Klaus Hebor, who Klaus is in, another incredible sort of proponent, propos- the word, pusher of Irish culture, let's say, uh, in, in Denmark. He ran all these cultural nights. An Irish pusher. Yeah, and he, he um, so he, he would bring us over maybe three or four times a year over to Denmark and tourists all over the place doing stuff. And that was brilliant. And then through my connections in Spain from having spent time there, uh, particularly in Galicia, we had, we had a little circuit worked out over there. And we were just lucky. We were lucky. We were on the road all the time, you know, and, um, because it's it's very difficult to make money in Ireland as a five piece band, you know. But you have to undertake it abroad. But uh, we we were very lucky, and we we made an album, and we got great, really good critical acclaim for the album. And to this day, we're all very very proud of that album. You know, we 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 got the best of the best involved in it, recorded it up in Grouse Lodge, and got um, Derek Murray from the Stunning to produce it, and we got Trevor Hutchinson from Lunasa to to mix it and got guest people like uh, Steve Wickham from the Waterboys through his magic across some of the tracks and you know it, it, it stands it still stands on its own this 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 album you know 10 years yeah it's a, it's a great it's a great album I mean and what how you know so what how did it move on then to Falcher what happened well, there it, it kind of like Fling ran its natural course you know and, and yeah. um, it became it, it like it, you know it, it couple of lads that had babies and things like that and you know to be going off on three or four week tours abroad it, it, it wasn't conducive to family life it's never being in a band is just not conducive to family life no 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 it, it clashes yeah it, and it, it it just you know the, the band ran its natural course because of these sort of just life clashes I suppose you know uh, we all we all remain great friends but it, it's um, yeah it just ran its course and then I don't know. Fulcher happened in a different kind of way altogether in that um, uh, myself and this friend of mine, Jer Chambers, who's just one of the best box players in the world, as far as I'm concerned, we kept talking about having a jam together. And he called down one day down to, to, to my house and we sat and we played all day, just trying to, you know, we'd never played together before properly. He'd come to see Fling play and things like that, but... Um, we just tried to work out how much common ground we had and, and we just, we absolutely gelled. 
like it's the best way it's going. We gelled like big time, and um, then we we got in another couple of guys, Kieran the Burka and Liam Conway, who was with Fling, and we were had a very very different vibe from Fling. Fling was you know kind of quite a rock vibe to it, I suppose. You know, with bass and drums and all that sort of stuff. But Paulcher was almost like a quartet. You know, it was very intricate and very. Con- con- very considered every, every 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 move was really considered and slow and it was just a, 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 a completely different vibe and uh so we yes yeah, it was it was more symphonic or c- composed i mean like not i'm not i'm not saying that there was any less work in the fling composition because it was a huge amount of work but this this because i think it was four very acoustic instruments we really had to really really think about it and uh, anyway, we got an opportunity to, again, working for the Department of Foreign Affairs. We went off to Malawi with that and toured Malawi and did a kind of a mix of corporate stuff and then also went into prisons and orphanages and schools and all sorts of places like that all over Malawi um, doing outreach work. And it, it was really amazing. And then we went off to Vietnam for Department of Foreign Affairs stuff and China again. And yeah. A great adventure. Uh, yeah, no, I, great I, I adventure. was really lucky, Simon, for years. I, I got to travel the world and got paid for it, you know what I mean? It was brilliant playing music, like, you know? There's no better playing music, playing music and getting paid for it. That's the best, no? Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that that's great. And, you know, then... Like you, you mentioned there the outreach uh, work. So let's move on. Let's at some of your refugee work and some of you know some of the voluntary work you've done. How did that come about? Was it through the music, or did you have some experiences that made you want to jump into that area and help people out? I, I mean, I've always had an interest in in outreach work and community work. Just, just I think it's just by nature of my own life. I've engaged with people from all many cultures, but. I think the Malawi experience really made me realize how transformative music can be in very, very desperate situations. In that, like, we ended up in a juvenile prison in um, in um, Malawi, and I, I cannot tell you how horrific a, a juvenile prison in Malawi is. And we spent the day in there playing music with these very, very sick and destitute children. But by the end of it, we had them all smiling. And I, I, it was a real um, light bulb moment for me. Going, you know, they, this is they need this as much as they need food. They need this, you know. So anyway, um, roll on to two thousand and fifteen, and the the um, sort of start of the massive refugee crisis in Greece, and there was tens of thousands of people fleeing Syria and Afghanistan and other parts of the Middle East and crossing the Aegean to islands uh, of Greece like uh, Chios and Lesbos. And, um, it was really, really, really bad. And I'm sure everybody will recall that absolutely awful picture. Mm, it was a hard time, wasn't it? For you know? Yeah. And um, I, 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 I don't know. I just got very, very, very moved by it all. I had time on my hands and I went, you know what? And I knew they were this was they were absolutely desperate for volunteers to go out there and help um on the islands. They were they they, they were they were swamped. So I made a few inquiries and uh, then found out, yeah, this is how you do it. And uh, then I was down in my local calf in in Kinvara having a, a coffee with my friend Pete Brazier and I said, Pete, I think I'm about to do something a bit mad. 
And he said, what's that? And I said, I'm, I'm going to go over to Delphos and uh, volunteer. And he, without hesitation, he just said, I'm coming with you. And I went, all right, fair enough. And then I mentioned it to Liam Conway, who's been a constant thread in my life between Fling and Vulture. I mentioned to him, and he says, I'm coming too. <laughs> and uh, then, um, yeah, anyway, we got a motley collection of us together. And um, we had this sort of little la-la world idea that we were going to go over and go into the camps and um, play music and do outreach stuff, because that's what we were good at. And uh, so anyway, we, we got over there. And at this point, there was up to 11,000 people a day landing on an island that's about four times the size of Inishmore. And So in, in reality, there wasn't much room for music. There was so many other things to do. They, yeah, like we arrived and they went, in your dreams, he is doing that. Get get, <laughs> get into a car and you're going on land, sea, rescue. And luckily, we had all done courses in first aid and emergency logistics before we left, because just in case. So, um, yeah, so we, uh, yeah, but basically we're spending our nights and days patrolling the coast and looking out with binoculars for boats that were coming over, tens of them at the time. And um, and helping people out of the boat, boats into the water. And it was winter and they were hypothermic. There was people coming with, like, literally had left the war zone with war injuries and were extremely wounded by the time they got to us. And um, you were doing a kind of a triage thing and just trying to get them a bit warm and get a bit dry and get them, You had to. they were so cold, you'd have to take their shoes and socks off them that were soaking because they were too cold to do it themselves and you'd put dry socks on them and you'd um, get them transported to the next space where they'd be processed and move along up through Europe, you know. Did they have, on the beach itself, did they have tents, rescue oh, tents on the no, beach? No, 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 no. Should they be no. landing up everywhere, Simon? Do you know what I mean? Like, they'd be, like basically the smugglers would go eeny, meeny, miny, mo with the men on the boat and the Turkish side and go, you, you're driving. And they would, I mean, lots of these people had never even seen the sea before. Never mind oh. operate a yeah, boat. Okay. And they'd be given rudimentary lesson in how to use the, 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 the motor, the tiller, and they'd be sent off and see those lights over there, aim for them. And uh, so, of course, they had no idea how to land the boat properly or anything like that, and they'd turn sideways to the waves as they were coming in. They'd all be tipped into the water and they'd be petrified and um it, it was horror story stuff it was absolute horror story stuff there's no uh, there's no way of putting any kind of gloss on it it was uh, really hard and really challenging and um uh, at the same time we were very glad that we were the people standing on the beach and giving these people a hug and saying welcome to europe because we we, we, were, we were genuinely feeling that we were what we wanted Europe to welcome them, you know. And after that, then you you set up your your like it was an NGO or a new organization, yeah. Road to Hope. That was that was as a direct consequence of that, was it? Yeah, it, it all it all grew from that. Like, so we did we did several tours over to Lesos, and then we moved down and set up base on Chaos, which was another island that was getting bombarded. And um, our, our kind of our roles changed somewhat that we were able to bring the music into it and we were because they had established camps on these islands at these points so that we were going and doing distributions of food or milk or cakes or whatever to the kids and we then we'd play music and we'd get everybody dancing and singing and just lift spirits a bit there you know and um now uh, you know to be straight with you after about six times going over 
uh, my head couldn't take any more of it. There was a, a, a few sort of awful things that were witnessed and you can only take so much of it, you know. I can imagine, you know, you you could have PTSD after events like that, no? Yeah, I, yeah, 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 hundred percent, like hundred percent. And and uh, but basically, I I I didn't stop. I I, I just changed tack. We had an amazing group of people at this point, and um, I, I mean, all uh, all credit to Frank Hall and and Eileen Fleming because they've they've kept the the. the the torch burning and they, they went over and they set up a language center on chaos. And it's like this real center of respite from the awful camps there. And people can go and just have a shower and have an English lesson. Or if they wanted to just sit and chill and read a book, they can do it. And that's all funded by road to hope now, you know, and, um, but, but we're also always been about emergency response. So, um, I don't know if you know, but recently on Lesbos, the, the biggest camp there, more yeah. down, there was a lot of activity there lately, wasn't there, in Lesbos? There's a camp there that's designed for about two and a half thousand people that had 13,000 people on it. And it burnt down. And, uh, it, it burnt down? Yeah, and I, it was like, these people were just destitute then, do you know? I mean, they were sleeping under, you know, like if you go into a supermarket and you, where the shopping trolleys are, it's got covered over it. People were sleeping under them and everything. Anyway... I mean, the whole point of Road to Hope has always been able to be flexible and um, and respond really quickly. So we had funds that we were able to throw money really rapidly into some of the grassroots organisations over there so they could get on with food distribution and getting sleeping bags and getting tents for people and things like that. And then we did ran a crowdfunding thing and raised, we're very proud now, we managed to raise four grand there in a few weeks and uh, we've sent that over. Uh, that's that's gone over to look after some of the organisations there as well. So, you know, even in, when we're not there in person, we, we, we've kept in touch with all the grassroots organisations who we know, because we know them personally, are doing the stuff and it's not getting funneled off by middle management or, you know, things like that. No, and that, that can be the biggest problem, you know, it, like this administration yeah. costs and the money goes in other directions, but not to where mm. it should go. Yeah, no, that's it exactly. Yeah, that's brilliant, and and you know we'll 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 put a link to the the NGO. It is an NGO, isn't it? Or is it? Would you call it an NGO? Or would you call it just an We're organization? organization? Now I see Frank is now looking after all that kind of thing, and he's awesome. And I think we are now an NGO. <laughs> we were very ad hoc for ages. It was just a group of musicians going, "What can we do?" You know, what I mean, just a motley group. No, but you you've made a difference. You know. You, yeah, no, we have made a really big difference. And uh, no, we are, I think, what is known as a charitable organization, if I can remember exactly. That's what we are. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. And, and, you know, it's great because these grassroots charities, you know, I was speaking to Colin Farrell from Stamp Out Suicide there last week. And the thing is, with these kind of grassroots charities, they really do as much as some of the big charities because it's, you know, they're, 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 connecting with the people and as you say there's not too much administration not too many much hierarchy and what happens is you know the money and the the feeling with it goes much further it does and and it can be very targeted like really really targeted with it like um you know for example like one of the organizations that we sent money to in the immediate aftermath of that fire was a group of congolese musicians who are living on the camp and they had been sort of just as kind of outreach stuff themselves and keeping themselves sane and been doing music and dance workshops. And, uh, but they'd been making videos of COVID awareness videos and things like that. 
and they're a great bunch of lads. But there's about four, 40 of them and their families, you know, but they immediately changed tack after the fire and started making sandwiches for everybody, you know what I mean? And just so we sent them. That's really great. And I mean, uh, you have to admire the work you've done and the work you're doing there. It's really good. So Maeve, you know, I'm going to I'm going to let you go soon. Um, so just, you know, last question or two for you. What, what are your ambitions for the future? You know, and, and what more would you like to do that you haven't already done? Because you, you've done so much, you know, you've had a very varied and adventurous life but you've had like you know your fun but you've also had very serious moments but you've done a lot of good for people in the world so what's next for you what would you like to do next that besides the business and everything what would you like to do kind of that you feel could make a difference well i don't know about what i could make a difference but i know there's one ambition simon and it's when i was traveling around asia i kept seeing these people sitting in beachside cafes with laptops in front of them going what are they doing what are they doing? And asking them, what were they doing? They were going, oh, I'm just running my business from my laptop while sitting at a beautiful beach in Southeast Asia. And I, oh, I want right. a piece of that. So someday I want to be one of those digital nomads that can sit anywhere I want in the world because I'm an eternal traveler. I just love to travel. I love to see other cultures. And um, so that's on a personal level. That's what I'd like to do. Um, I Well, that's yeah, great. That's um, great. And I don't know... I, Everything else seems to just happen quite spontaneously with me. <laughs> so I never, if I made plans, it wouldn't but, but I want to grow the business. I'm very happy with my business. And uh, I just, you know. I just... Well, I, I think you're one of these people who gets inspired. Oh, yeah. I, I'm a bit like a, a pinball in a pinball machine, Simon. Like it, it takes very little to send me off in a different direction, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But that's good because that's that spontaneity and that inspiration and that kind of, you know, that nomadic spirit you have, it, you know, it, not only does it help you be happy, but it does a lot of good for other people. So I think it's really good and you have to admire you for that and your hard work. And, and now it's great that the hard work you've always had in your system is now kind of helping you start your own business and make it effective and make it kind of work for you. So I think that's great. And, you know, a fair play to you. Nice one. Thank you, Simon. You're welcome. You're welcome. So listen, Maeve, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I know you're a very busy woman, so I don't want to keep you for much longer. But um, thanks very much. And we will put all relevant links to your your Whiskey Stone Company and to the Road to Hope charity as well and your music. We will put all this um, when we broadcast this. And, um, you know, once again, thanks very much. And it's been a pleasure having you. Brilliant. And thank you. It's been great chatting to you. You're great, Maeve. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Right. Nice one, Simon. <laughs> okay, guys, thank you very much. That was Maeve Kelly all the way from Kinvara, and she had some interesting stories and adventures to tell us, and I hope you all enjoyed it very much. Um, next week's guest will be Mr. Dave Proctor. Dave is a New Zealand native who's been living in Ireland for now for a long time, and he's a musician here. He plays bass and guitar and plays with a lot of bands around County Galway. Uh, I've played in one or two bands with Dave myself, actually, and a uh, great guy, and he has an interesting story to tell us. So we'll be looking forward to that, and I hope you tune in. Here, we're going to play you out with some of Maeve Kelly's music from Falcha. We hope you enjoy it. Take care, guys, and see you next time. Bye-bye.
Gavrochnahari 